0: With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. This is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right, welcome to the program. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We are on TNT, today's news talk. Thank you for joining us here on Thursday. We have uh, action-packed, program of events today lined up for the next two hours live and direct here on today's news talk we'll be connecting uh, in the first hour with the journalist from the united states michael tracy a fantastic political commentator i want to get his take on a lot of things including the 2024 election but also the latest uproar about Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Uh, Everybody's in fits. There's meltdowns every which way you look Uh, in the US media, all sorts of crazy accusations about uh, how this could be construed as uh, espionage or election meddling. I mean, the hyperbole, uh, the hysterics are just out of control. Uh, Is this a prelude to what we're going to see in the run-up to the 2024 election? Because if it is, uh, I don't know if I want to be around to watch this horror show. Uh, But anyway, we'll talk to Michael Tracy about that in the first hour. And also in the second hour, we're going to be joined by Basil Valentine, our roving correspondent, for updates on the Middle East, plus Christian James as well. We'll be looking at some of the Green New Deal follies uh, that are currently destroying the European and the UK and the U S North American economies. When are governments going to let go of these boondoggle projects and start addressing the real economic situation, which is currently, uh, in free fall. Uh, if you look at some of the, uh, telltale signs that we're seeing right now Uh, it does not look good right across the board including on the energy markets we've also got uh, interruptions with regards to global fuel uh, supply chains and so forth it really is the last time you want to be tinkering around with the fundamentals of the economy by I don't know, aspirational Green New Deal policies that may or may not have any effect in the next uh, two or 300 years. It's all theory, folks, based on computer modeling. That's what we're running off of right now. Let's talk to Christian about that in the second hour, find out where these stories are headed. Now, uh, there's all sorts of jockeying for position going on right now. We uh, covered uh, the recent primary uh, in Nevada with the GOP, Nikki Haley falling behind. Uh, nobody. Nobody. Uh, none of the above uh, got more votes than Nikki Haley did in the new, uh, the Nevada primary. Uh, so she's uh, chalking that up basically to the fact that uh, they didn't spend any money in Nevada uh, and it wasn't really something they took seriously. And then Trump rigged the Nevada primary, according to Nikki Haley. So some people can talk about election rigging. Others can't. We'll also talk to Michael Tracy about that uh, here in the first hour when we connect uh, him as well. We also spoke about the potential coup that is underway or some sort of a democratic crisis going on in West Africa, uh, in the country of Senegal. What does that mean uh, more broadly uh, when we're looking at the geopolitics of the region? We spoke to Freddie Ponton about that. And we're also uh, covering other areas of Africa. We will be as well with Freddie, including the Congo, uh, which looks like it is potentially going to be embroiled in a civil war as well. We may be touching that uh, later uh, in the week and next week as well. And then if we're looking at the uh, political crisis right now in Europe, Europe seems to be torn right now uh, between whether to back this absolutely losing proxy war uh, in Ukraine, this has been an absolute disaster. It's been a disaster for the European economies. Uh, There's also a huge political toll to pay for European leaders that have been backing this project from the beginning and being asked to commit uh, ungodly sums of money and military support to uh, a regime in kiev let's face it ladies and gentlemen uh, is anything but democratic so apparently to uphold democratic values Uh, The European partners are backing a government led by a former comedian, maybe still acting. Who knows? Uh, This is definitely the role of his life. The only problem is he can't get out of character. He's still wearing the green T-shirt. Meanwhile, Ukraine has suspended elections indefinitely, so long as the war is going on. Uh, They've also uh, suspended any opposition parties. They've suspended any independent media. Uh, They've also suspended uh, a large portion of the church, the Orthodox Church uh, in Ukraine. So no freedom of religion, no freedom of the press, no freedom of democracy, no freedom of speech. Uh, All these things have been suspended uh, in Ukraine for a very long time now. And they said it's going to continue indefinitely into the future until at some point they win the war. What does winning the war mean for Ukraine? It means reestablishing 1991 borders, okay, and recapturing all this territory, including Crimea, that uh, Russia has subsumed into the Russian Federation. That's what they're saying. Does that mean there's going to be an end to this or is this just going to continue in perpetuity as a frozen conflict a la South Korea and North Korea? Certainly, that would be ideal for NATO uh, in order to have a new Iron Curtain or a new military front further east, closer to Russia. Strategically, of course, this is good for NATO in their eyes anyway. Uh, For Europe, though, it's usually risky uh, because anything could trigger off major fighting uh, between NATO member states like Poland. Germany, of course, is is uh, up to their eyeballs uh, in this conflict, uh, financially, politically. Uh, the price that they're going to bear at the ballot box, we'll find out in the next election. They're already suppressing political parties in Germany who are opposing the war. So this is all in all a very bad situation for Europe so you're going to start seeing fissures and cracks uh, in the narrative the United States and Britain will be there to try to shore up those cracks uh, in the narrative to try to keep this flimsy and increasingly precarious coalition from completely falling apart uh, that's what you're going to see in the coming months meanwhile uh Russia can just sit back and wait uh time is on its side unfortunately time is not on the side of the Zelensky government in kiev nor is it on the side of washington with an election cycle coming up this could be a liability it's already turning out to be a liability look at the funding farrago right now in congress regarding assistance for ukraine the u.s border and israel everybody's tied in knots There are billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, in fact, on the ready for various wars and overseas escapades, but apparently not much money uh, for the United States domestically. So that's where things are at right now. It's going to be very interesting as things unfold in the coming weeks and months, and we'll be here to bring you our analysis as well as talk to some of the best experts uh, in these various fields. Zelensky's latest delusion. It's worth commenting on Uh, why has the Ukrainian leader decided to claim multiple regions of Russia? What is this all about? Well, Zelensky is becoming more ambitious. Uh, He feels he has a mandate from the West, uh, but his country, if you look at the polling, uh, he is sliding very quickly. What is he talking about? He's uh, issued a decree on Russian lands historically inhabited by Ukrainians incredible indeed it is so it's historically inhabited by ukrainians preserving the national identity of ukrainians in russia what sort of areas uh, is he talking about well he's talking about a number of present-day russian republics including the rostov region okay he's claiming this is ukraine so Zelensky's kind of overshooting the mark a little bit maybe overcompensate in order to uh, leverage up some sort of a compromise uh, situation here but they really don't have any hand to play militarily in this is this just rhetoric uh, to play to an increasingly angry uh, mob in ukraine certainly he has not endeared himself to a number of factions within his own country as people are looking to wind down this conflict in its current form and get to some sort of a peace negotiations the pressure Will mount. But anyway, here he goes. uh, Basically, nationalist rhetoric uh, on another level we haven't seen yet. It's getting more and more ridiculous uh, as the day goes by. Uh, So, anyway, that's just one of many follies uh, coming out of Kiev uh, at the moment. Uh, in the meantime, however, uh, let's take a quick break with TNT. Today's News Talk, I'm Patrick Ennick, your host. And when we come back, we're going to connect with American journalist Michael Tracy to talk about a number of things in the United States especially the uproar over tucker carlson's uh interview with vladimir putin in moscow that's due to air today on x formerly known as twitter everybody will be watching very very closely it'll be very interesting when to get michael's take on this plus the 2024 election which he's been on the road covering as well all this and more we'll be right back after these messages
0: tnt's
1: bruce de torres the who's proposed treaty will increase man-made pandemics by Merrill Nass. Just a minute about this. This report is designed to help readers think about some big topics. How to really prevent pandemics and biological warfare. How to assess proposals by the WHO and its members for responding to pandemics. And whether we can rely on our health officials to navigate these areas in ways that make sense and will help the population... populations... We start with a history of biological arms control and rapidly move to the COVID pandemic, eventually arriving at plans to protect the future. She didn't put protect in quotes, but I just did verbally. World Stage and Bruce
0: de Torres on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. You are about to hear today's news talk and the voice of freedom. That's what this country is all about. TNT Radio
1: welcome back welcome back ladies and gentlemen to tnt today's news talk i'm patrick kenningson your host thank you for rejoining us for this live broadcast we're still in hour number one uh, we're going to be switching gears right now to the u.s politics uh, and i want to welcome onto the program uh, an independent journalist on the ground in the united states who's been doing some spectacular coverage on the campaign trail so far in the 2024 election cycle a fascinating take on things michael tracy is joining us uh, on the line right now from the U.S. Michael, welcome to the program.
2: Hello, thanks for having me on.
1: No, it's our pleasure, Michael. And uh, there's a couple of things that uh, I definitely want to hear your views on. Uh, We'll talk about the 2024 election cycle, but let's cut right to the chase. The big story that everybody is talking about right now in the U.S. is Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin, which is due to be broadcast today on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. And I want to get your take on this. There's been a huge reaction. I mean, some incredible things have been said about Tucker Carlson, what should be done as a reaction to this interview by Tucker. Uh, you know, just your feelings and thoughts on this, your observations, Michael.
2: Yeah, you know, I wrote an article about this for Newsweek a few days ago, two days ago now. And obviously, my perspective is that. It's straightforward for, straight and undeniable that anybody who has an opportunity to interview a significant world leader should seize that opportunity. I didn't even realize that was such a controversial point, but apparently it is. And on the Newsweek homepage accompanying my article, or like adjacent to it, there's blaring headlines about how some EU official is saying that Tucker Carlson could be sanctioned for – Going to Russia to interview Putin on what exact grounds, I'm not exactly sure, but there probably will be some clamor for that, given how hysterical people get about just the mere fact of being in Putin's presence and interviewing him. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Putin was actually relatively accessible to American and Western media outlets, more than you might expect, and people might find it a little bit surprising now. Uh, But in 2021, he did an almost 90-minute interview with NBC. Keir Simmons of NBC News, live from Russia. This is very extensive, very uh, detailed. And I recall Putin actually extending the period of time that he was sitting for the interview mid-interview. So it went longer than it was scheduled for. And he has done long interviews with the Financial Times. What people seem to be objecting to now so maniacally is not anything to do with the interview itself, because we haven't seen it yet. No one has, as far as I know. So they can't be objecting to the content of the the interview. They're objecting to the principle of Tucker Carlson being in Russia and interviewing Putin. So you will have people who are claiming that they're the guardians of journalistic ethics or something, screeching with such fervor in denunciation of this interview before they could have possibly had a chance to see it. So ironically, they're the ones who are contradicting standard journalistic ethics because they're prejudging something that they haven't necessarily been able to see, um, which is kind of insane. And the idea that it's it's preferable for American or Western audiences to continue to have almost zero direct access to Putin, at least in terms of a media interview, because he's not done one for an English speaking audience that I know of since before The Ukraine war started in February 2022. uh, The idea that it would be preferable for that lack of exposure to continue is just crazy, considering that bilateral relations between the two leading global nuclear superpowers are at a historic low. So, any increase in interchange between the country's uh, political classes or uh, cultural classes or in this case media classes would seem to me to be preferable than for relations to just continue to crater with no mitigation at all so that's my initial reaction
1: there's There's a couple of things that I, I noticed in the sort of uh, conversation surrounding this, Michael. One of them is there's a lot of concern that somehow this is going to influence the twenty twenty four election. You've probably seen some of these comments as well. I can't understand how that could be, but uh, they're 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 afraid that Tucker has opened the door to the American psyche or the American mind or the the cultural space. The military experts are calling it the fifth generation warfare space, and Tucker's allowing Putin into the minds of Americans in a very fragile election year. I don't like the sound of this, Michael, because this sounds crazy, and this is only step one of crazy uh, on this election cycle. You've been covering this election, too, so you probably have some special insights on this. What do you think about that, that sort of accusation?
2: Well, man, I mean, there's something psychologically irreparable about the media's take on things that could allegedly help Trump because they're always dot connecting and trying to discern patterns of like phenomena out in the natural universe that they can claim in some convoluted way helps Trump. And if they can make that claim, then whatever is supposedly helping Trump must be furiously denounced because that's the embodiment of pure evil. So this is just a continuation of that. I don't see any plausible case or rational case that Putin doing an interview in February of 2024 is going to help Donald Trump like win Wisconsin in November of 2024? Like what's the ch- what's like the chain of events there that people are suggesting is somehow going to be such a political boon to Trump? But you're right. I mean, people are making this reflexive points. My debate counterpart on Newsweek because they set it up as a debate that I was making like the pro-journalism argument and the other journalist was making the anti-journalism argument, strangely enough. Um, He made a similar argument that in some way he didn't exactly specify just the mere fact of Tucker Carlson interviewing Putin is going to redound to the political benefit of Donald Trump and therefore it must be, you know, presumptively announced as this grave you know, offense to the American body politic or something. And he actually said that Putin should not be interviewed at all. I, whether by Tucker or anyone else, it's, not, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, these people don't really have a lot of precision in how they formulate their arguments. But he was saying we're better off not having an, any interview with Putin at all because Russia already has enough influence on the American psyche through its manipulation of the Internet and through other propaganda mechanisms that it has at its disposal. I don't know if my observation comports with yours, but the idea that Russia has this highly sophisticated propaganda apparatus seems like it's probably not the truest thing at this point because uh, whatever else you think about the Ukraine war, I see it seems like for at least much of it, the Russian state's propaganda apparatus such as it exists has... Uh, been dwarfed by the pro Ukraine propaganda apparatus. So the idea that it was this fearsome, you know, uh, this fearsome influencer of, of external public opinion seems like it's been tr- disproven by the events of the past two years. But people are so convinced of this because remember, they think that the Russian propaganda apparatus is so omnipotently powerful that it installed Donald Trump as president in 2016. <laughs> they haven't been dis- disabused of that belief. Um, so, if that's the grandiosity with which they view the supposed online manipulation threat, then uh, it's not surprising that they continue to, you know, pattern detect, and they're applying the same blinker logic to the forthcoming interview with Tucker and Putin.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of circular logic at play uh, with the base assumptions from 2016 are still uh, living, looming large in the minds of uh, many uh, Americans, unfortunately. But isn't it a case, Michael, that they've heavily censored uh, any Russian statements or foreign ministry statements or Putin or whoever, Russian media full stop? It doesn't really exist in the West uh, for all intents and purposes. The, The URLs have been banned in europe um so it doesn't exist there it's not on youtube they took it off but isn't it a case that the thing that you ban if you get into this censorship game including this uh, interview with tucker the reactions have guaranteed it's going to be the highest rated uh program of the year the thing that you ban there's going to be this kind of you know curiosity and craving by people to want to see it uh isn't is that what is that's also a play here do you think Yeah. I don't
2: know that it's so much brute force censorship in the United States. This is different from Europe where there has been overt state censorship of Russian state media outfits and more heavy handed censorship tactics than are really quite as permissible in the United States. There probably are some instances of outright censorship in the U.S. that Aren't springing to mind right now, but I think it's more slightly more subtle, and then even perhaps more insidious in the U.S. in some ways, uh, just because of the First Amendment protections. I mean, I mean, like RT, I think is technically still available on just cable uh, packages, right? Um, now it can be kind of buried, it can be de-emphasized, and maybe that's just as effective in terms of curtailing its reach. Um, but it's not quite the same as the situation in Europe. I mean, I remember being in Poland shortly after the invasion of Ukraine and scrolling through like the dial of the TV monitor. And then if you go onto RT, which is like a pretty high-ranked channel at that time, it was just a bl- black screen. It was kind of eerie. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, whether I mean they can't ban or censor this Tucker Carlson interview, right? I mean, we're told that Elon Musk is give it an assurance that it will be made available and not uh, de-amplified on Twitter. I mean, if anything, they'll probably amplify it just because Tucker has this you know, arrangement along with a few others with Twitter or X uh, for uh, to you know, produce uh, a media. And it's more about the preemptive declarations that this is some kind of horrible taboo or that Tucker has done something nefarious just by dint of going to Russia with the intent of interviewing Putin. So it's the uproar that's preceding the publication of the interview that I think is going to engender extra attention. I mean, obviously, with Putin not having done a Western or U.S.-oriented interview for so long, it was going to get a ton of attention anyway. But the screeching and the histrionics that came first, uh, of course, only heightened the anticipation for the actual interview. So, yeah, often these people are the people who are having that historical reaction are not not the most rational actors, because if they're rational actors and they really didn't want this out, then they would just like, you know, play it cool or just not go excessively crazy. And then maybe that would temper some of the the anticipation of it and maybe limit its reach. But they've ensured that it's going to have maximum reach now.
1: So I think I've been looking at Ukrainian Ukrainian Twitter as well they're saying that this isn't a a, a a legitimate interview because the questions aren't being vetted like they would with a mainstream media outlet there's no vetting I see this word being used a lot so like vetted by whom <laughs> I, I, by by somebody in in a dark suit in the back of the control room I don't know but th- they were like BBC offcom arguments. to vet or something yeah, really, all, like, some,
2: like, some, like quasi-governmental authority should be able to technocratically vet the questions.
1: Yeah, yeah, broadcasting authority or a watchdog or something like that. So so what does this say about, because these set-piece interviews, Michael, used to be Mike Wallace, Barbara Walters, uh, Christiane Amanpour. They, they had a kind of monopoly on these set-piece interviews. Peter Arnett interviewed Osama bin Laden. Um, so the mainstream media organizations, News Corp, these big corporations, they're not getting these opportunities. This is incredible. If you think about these billion dollar media conglomerates, they can't land these interviews, but Tucker lands it. Isn't that what the? do you think that's more about what the uproar is about? Is this this is the establishment having a sort of, you know, uh, you know, lashing out at uh what's clearly a, a trend that's moving in a direction that's not in their favor what do you think
2: yeah i think the mul- the uproar is multi-pronged so what christian amin said is that you know, tucker is lying or tucker's not telling the truth because in his introductory video from two days ago or whatever it was tucker did say that no american journalist or western journalist has bothered to interview putin since the invasion of ukraine And of course, because they're obsessed with just kind of trivialities, journalists latched onto that, you know, and there were like angry monologues on CNN primetime saying that Tucker is lying because outlets like CNN or the BBC or whatever, NBC, ABC, they have technically probably submitted interview requests to the Kremlin uh, communications department seeking to interview Putin. So they have sought to interview Putin, but then that got conflated as, according to the outraged journalists, them never even attempting to uh, interview Putin. And maybe, like, Tucker's phrasing of that or framing of that was, you know, uh, angled in a certain way for emphasis. Uh, But the point is, nobody has successfully obtained an interview with Putin until now, and it's Tucker who's obtained it. So yeah, that's all automatically going to produce revulsion on the part of the journalists who think that it's their rightful, uh, their rightful uh, own. Uh, it's 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 rightfully theirs to interview Putin or to have a major interview like this, and Tucker getting it is a subversion of their like journalistic authority or something or cultural or political authority. And and it is. I mean, their right to observe that it is in a way, because uh, Tucker doesn't have corporate backing at this point, <laughs> and yet. Well, I mean, I guess he does maybe in a way because he has the arrangement with uh, with X, but he doesn't have a major corporate broadcasting backing. And to, to sub- subvert the typical way that an interview like this would be organized or engineered is, is kind of a threat to just the basic mis- business model of the people who are freaking out about it. So there's one that's one element of why there's such an uproar. But I also think, secondarily, the probably more salient aspect of the uproar is that they just See the I, notion of Tucker interviewing Putin, going to Russia, and interviewing Putin as itself to be treasonous or objectionable. Again, they don't even have to see the interview itself; they don't have to see the, journal, the final journalistic product to know that they're outraged by it. So, I mean, you could imagine somebody else. I don't know, like a Don Lemon. He has an or a, he has an, an arrangement with X now, right? As well. So, if maybe somehow you know, for whatever crazy series of events, he was the one who ended up in Moscow interviewing Putin, would there be such a blithering frenzy of out, of outrage? I don't think so because Don Lemon probably would have taken a kind of more conventional approach to the interview. Um, Don Lemon wouldn't be seen as having any kind of ideological affinity with Putin where this, that's assumed as g- given with Tucker, whether that's true or not. I don't know exactly. I, I doubt it, uh, but that's the kind of unexamined assumption. Um, so I don't think it's only. I don't think it's entirely about how the traditional model of how an interview like this would be orchestrated has been undermined. It's more about Tucker himself representing something that is seen as inherently evil, and he's all. He's not just. He's not going to uh, to Russia to interview Putin or to commit an act of journalism. They're claiming that he's going there to just to do the PR bidding of Putin, and who they view as the next iteration of Hitler, and so therefore it's just this you know, smorgasbord of pure evil. There's nothing journalistic about it, according to them
1: one thing i can say about tucker carlson that um he does that a lot of good journalists do and have done in the past is that he questions what the u.s foreign policy is uh he questions whether we should be as a country embroiled in various wars or situations quagmires and so forth he's done that uh consistently with a number of conflicts not just ukraine so there is a pattern with tucker of literally questioning overseas interventions so is that's also a big problem because he will uh, air a view uh from moscow from the russian president about how the war is going and because we've been told in michael in america for two years that the war is going really well victory is around the corner russia's been brought to their knees economically all of these things tucker threatens potentially here to upend a lot of these or at least get people to question or reexamine some of these assumptions i i, I think this is like really triggering people on, on a deep level politically um who don't want this interview to happen um what do you think they're going to be talking about do you think some of these things are going to come out uh in the process of this i think it's an hour he said it's going to be one hour unedited yeah um, I thought
2: I might, I might even saw, have seen two hours. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see later today. And that would be a long interview. <laughs> and to put it out on edited, I think, is also something that people will increasingly demand because the format of having to insert commercial breaks or to clip an interview so it you know, neatly aligns with the, the broadcast demands of a traditional like, nightly news show is becoming archaic. Uh, when most people are going to, you know, especially people with people who are younger, I mean, what is the average age of a Fox News viewer at this point? Chuckers' former mm-hmm. employer, like 63, probably. I mean, yep. it's they're aging. They're aging out of there being a demand for that kind of formatting any longer. And right. But right, uh, rightly so. Or thankfully, so, because it's ridiculous with all the technology we have available now that there should be such a arbitrary, you know, uh, cluttering of an interview with, you know, needless editing and commercials and whatever. So that's good. Um, you know, in March of 2022, I was in uh, Eastern Europe, Poland, right as the war was starting. And I was going, I was reporting on the deployments of U.S. military uh, battalions right in the vicinity of uh, Ukraine in southwest, Southeastern Poland. Uh, in uh, Yeshiv, in Southeastern Poland, there's now like a major hub of U.S. military and NATO logistics—that was only beginning to form when I was first there, and I was trying to go and uh, talk. Uh, I was attempting to visit some of these newly constructed military installations. So I just showed up to one and was, you know, talking to some of the the uh, U.S. and Polish military who were there, and I was told that there was a, a gag order, or there was a you know, there was a media gag order in in place, so that. Nobody, none of the U.S. military who were there were to speak to any media whatsoever about what they were doing. And uh, I was on Tucker's show, going on Tucker's show that night, and his producers confirmed with the Pentagon that there was, in fact, a gag order in place at these newly constructed military installations in Poland, right in the direct vicinity of the war zone. Uh, That hadn't been reported in U.S. media yet, and yet what did Tucker's team do there in in conjunction with me. That was just a straightforward act of journalism. They got confirmation from the government that they were doing something of consequence that had not yet been disclosed to the public. So when you have CNN anchors or others screaming that Tucker can't possibly be a journalist, and we can't look at this as a forthcoming journalistic interview, I mean, there's just plenty of contradicting evidence showing that he has committed acts of journalism. I mean, whether you like him or dislike him is kind of immaterial to whether he does journalistic work. I mean, they love to try to police who could be Rightly classified as a journalist, as though that makes a difference to anybody, or if it's like some vaunted societal status. I mean, you could be a piece of crap and a journalist. I mean, and it doesn't like they're not contradictory. Or you could be like you know a saint and a journalist. So they're going to try to get people bogged down in that debate, um, uh, which is is ridiculous. You know, I think um, it would be rational. I mean, let's say hypothetically. I doubt this will happen. I can't imagine that Tucker will be as sycophantic with Putin as your average you know, Fox host now is with Donald Trump or NBC host is with Joe Biden. But let's say hypothetically he is. Let's say he just decides that he's a huge fan of Putin and just <laughs> wants to completely kiss his ass the, for two hours. That would be worth reasonably scrutinizing because t- Putin is a powerful world figure and should be subject to rational journalistic inquiry just like anybody else. But we have no evidence that that's happened yet. People are, again are just objecting to just the mere principle of the interview being conducted um, so yeah I mean obviously what you'd want to if, if, if you want to have an accurate understanding of any world conflict even even leave aside that it's russia ukraine or nato Ukra- uh Russia at this point, wouldn't you want to have the most comprehensive comprehensive understanding as possible of what the motives are for each warring party? I mean the idea that it's bad to consume or to gather that information is a pure propaganda perspective because people aren't objecting to this because they, um, on, on journalistic grounds, because on journalistic grounds, you would want to have as much information as possible about the nature of the conflict. And this is a big missing piece, at least for Western audiences for the past two years. Obviously, you can read a Putin speech if you want, but like not that many people in... Just the ordinary like American public are probably going to be moved to like go to the Kremlin English translation website and, like read transcripts of his speeches or something. They have to have it sort of filtered to them by the tastemakers or the people who are you know uh, regulating sort of information consumption. And now that that's happening, that's a big kind of black hole that's being at least partially filled. Um, which anybody who's just interested in under better understanding the basics of the conflict should celebrate. And if you're, you know, if you're condemning it, then you're operating from a propaganda perspective, not a journalistic one, which again is ironic because the, these people who are castigating Tucker Carlson are going to run around claiming the mantle of journalistic integrity when they're really doing the opposite
1: no uh, yeah the, 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 there's a lot of that going on right now um so yeah the 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 aftermath of this is going to be very interesting to read uh what's uh, in the washington post the final uh these sort of uh, op-eds that are that are coming uh they're in the they've probably already been written michael a lot of these op-eds even I could pre-write
2: one in my sleep
1: <laughs> that's the that's the sad uh, that's the sad truth of it. Um, look, we're going to take a break. As I, I, come, as I,
2: I, as I said in my ahead. Newsweek item uh, uh, two days ago, these people r- haven't had an original thought since the Steele dossier. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was, it's debatable whether those were original thoughts um, anyway. But, yeah, that's true. Um, I
2: should modify uh, my statement
1: i'm with michael tracy uh, independent journalist we're talking about the uproar surrounding tucker carlson's interview with vladimir putin it's been deemed verboten right across the western uh, political and media spectrum but when we come back michael has also had a look on the 2024 election campaign trail the gop side is uh, very interesting but uh, somewhat strange uh, as well this is a very odd election cycle i want to get michael's take on that and more on the other side. This is TNT, Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back after these messages. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective.
3: So I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, because I'm doing a climate roundtable tomorrow. I'm assuming that the network that invited me on is probably the only network that's left around this part of the country that actually allows climate skeptics to be on. It'll be interesting because I'm sure there are going to be some people there to challenge me. In any case, when I walked into the hotel, the person at the front desk was from Adelaide, Australia, the city of churches. See, I learned something, right? And I got to thinking that maybe tomorrow I will spring on the people that are there for almost unprecedented climate events that have occurred around Australia that are very, very important around the climate. Now, not directly with Australia, but north of Australia, the typhoon season, despite the fact that we supposedly had an El Nino going, was way, way below normal third lowest ever. That's very unusual. And that was the first hint that this El Nino wasn't what it was cracked up to be. As a matter of fact, the Southern Oscillation Index, which is the longest running metric of the El Nino, never got into El Nino category this year until now. But that was unprecedented when you had what we call the Oceanic Nino Index being so strong. That's two unprecedented things. Number three, the crash that is occurring in the Southern Oscillation Index index is going to be the greatest on record from January to February. In fact, it may be the greatest on record from one month to another. It is unprecedented to see January with an above SOI and then February crashing the way this is. Now, in 1978, we had a weak El Nino going and then it crashed in February. By the way, they had all those floods in Los Angeles in 78. How about that? The fourth thing, the unprecedented warming of the ocean, to the east of Australia in a month or two. See that? Tonight's climate and weather watchdog was all about Australia. It's because I ran into someone from Adelaide. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bustoni asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got.
0: Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until I had my own heart event. I had a a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries, stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. This is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT
1: Radio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. It is Thursday. We are still in the first hour of this live broadcast. Really appreciate you guys joining us right now. And hello to our listeners and viewers and everybody in the TNT chat community. That's the little red bubble in the lower right hand part of the screen. We go to the URL tntradio.live. You can also access it through the app, which you can download on the Google Play and the Apple Store as well. We have a big crowd in there. Really appreciate you guys getting consistently high numbers, uh, over 150 to 200 in our chat community during the show these are great so that's where you want to be during the program we'll be interacting with you in there shortly as well uh, back on to the program however let's bring michael tracy independent journalist uh, from the united states onto the stage and Michael, we've also noticed you've been on the campaign trail uh, on this 2024 election cycle, and you're 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 kind of almost reporting it. Um, I don't know. I, I I like your style. You're you're going a bit Gonzo, uh, ala Hunter Thompson, where you're getting right in there and seeing things and reporting things that most of the mainstream media aren't really paying attention to. What's your observation so far uh, that you've seen on the on the 2024 election?
2: Well, I'm not taking LSD and infiltrating any campaigns or anything. so maybe <laughs> right. not quite gonzo of the <laughs> traditionally understood uh, methods. But yeah, um, I mean, there are a couple of underreported things, I think. Uh, so, for example, in New Hampshire, where I was two weeks ago now, or when was that? Yeah, about two weeks ago. Um, there was it, were a couple of things. First of all, the... Uh, democratic National Committee and the Joe Biden re-election campaign did something that was pretty unprecedented, actually literally unprecedented, which is that they went out of their way specifically to sabotage the New Hampshire primary, which actually has a long history of being a pretty interesting exercise in democratic choice because people might not be aware of this, but New England and New Hampshire in particular has a pretty unique style of self-governance Within the United States, they have very granular town hall style government where citizens of small towns go and become like the de facto legislatures of their towns for uh, a session to approve ordinances and things. And and from that grows a very engaged kind of citizen um, ethic in terms of uh, state and local governments, government and also national government. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not trying to idealize it necessarily, but of all the states in the Union, New Hampshire is probably a decent one to go first in a presidential primary process if you have to pick one. And Joe Biden happened to come in fifth place in New Hampshire in 2020 when he ran for the Democratic nomination that year. And so the DNC, in conjunction with the Biden campaign within the past year or two, maneuvered to strip New Hampshire of delegates, essentially. Um, by saying that it was no longer entitled to its first in the nation status, which it has actually codified in its state statutes, um, because they were arguing that there needs to be a more diverse electorate that kicks everything off. And that happened to just coincidentally be South Carolina, where Biden won like a big victory in 2020. And that basically skyrocketed him to eventually getting the nomination. So it was a pure political play, but they tried to frame it as, out of their concern for increasing diversity or something, which is just a farce. Um, and they went through they went to some pretty extreme lengths to suppress the primary. I mean, the the DNC sent a threat letter essentially to the New Hampshire Democratic Party, saying that you are required to inform the public that this election is meaningless and that candidates should not participate. So they were <laughs> ordering, like the Central Party Committee was ordering the state party to essentially suppress the vote or to engage in voter suppression tactics or tactics that in virtually any other circumstance, if you could imagine, if it was Republicans doing it, Democrats mm-hmm. would cry foul, and rightly so, as voter suppression. I mean, imagine if it was like a minority group that the Republicans were targeting that at or something. Um, and yet it got very little attention in media coverage. There's only one... You know Dean Phillips, who's a Democratic congressman with pretty generic views, that is technically running against Biden and did so in New Hampshire. He's called attention to it, but he's seen as kind of a marginal figure, which he is, and it, it didn't get a whole lot of uh, critical coverage, which it should because it completely flies in the face of the main Democratic Party campaign message. Ever since the dawn of you know the age of Trump, which is that there are these stalwart heroic defenders of democracy and they have to ward off like the, the hordes of the, uh, anti-democratic, um, you know, insurgents or insurrectionists personified by Trump and the MAGA movement because they want to abolish democracy. Well, I mean, they started off this whole campaign cycle by essentially sabotaging the first major democratic exercise in the, in the process. Um, and this is like a pretty story tradition in, in New Hampshire going back, you know, many, de- many decades. Um, so that was one thing. Uh, there is also, I mean, there's interesting uh, sentiment that I tried to pick up on from the Trump voter. Uh, a lot are j- just going to be generic Republicans who are following the Republican standard bearer. Uh, but you do see some shifts in messaging. Like there were people who volunteered to me that they viewed uh, Trump as the best candidate because he's going to prevent World War III or because he didn't start any wars. Now I think there's ways that you can, um quibble with those talking points which trump and his campaign app, you know, apparatus have actually been going with and promoting but the very fact that that's a salient political message with the with the republican frontrunner um is a notable uh, shift um i would make probably some substantive criticisms of those those claims because you know a lot of what we're seeing in Ukraine now actually ha- was foretold by actions of the Trump administration. Go look at Putin's speech in February of 2022. A lot of his grievances that he cites with U.S. policy occurred under the Trump administration, and you know Trump has said stuff like last summer he did an interview where he's saying, you know, he, his position on Ukraine really has no detail to it other than Trump is claiming that, it number one, never would have happened if he was president, and number two, he'll get it all solved in 24 hours. So we don't need to, apparently need to know anything other than that in terms of policy specifics, in terms of Trump how, how Trump would handle the issue. But he did give a little bit of more detail during one interview uh, a few months ago where he said that he would tell Putin that if he doesn't accept the, the US-imposed deal, that uh Trump would threaten to send Ukraine even more weapons than ever before. And then just uh, more recently, a week or two ago in Nevada, Trump was campaigning ahead of the caucuses, which I think are maybe today. Um, Trump was saying that he was basically going to do what, what, what Ron DeSantis campaigned on doing. Ron DeSantis had a, com- a completely inchoate position on Ukraine because he was always trying to triangulate and he was always trying to like not... 100% offend the more anti-interventionist or Ukraine skeptical contingent of the Republican electorate, but also try to remain in good standing with the more hawkish or pro-interventionist element. He was always trying to like, uh, tread, uh, or, you know, walk that fine line and never really did it convincingly. So he always just ended up basically incoherent on the subject. But what he would say when he was prompted to answer the question to kind of give give the vague indication that he was somehow intervention skeptical was he was saying, Europe needs to step up their game. We need to pressure the EU to spend more on Ukraine than we are or equal our uh, funding commitment because it's more important for them than it is for us, which is not a, like an anti-interventionist statement. It's actually saying we, the U.S. should cajole or pressure Europe into increasing their interventionism in Ukraine. Um, and so that's typically what DeSantis went with when he was addressing the subject Um and Trump basically repeated a, a, almost an exact version of that uh, in a speech that he made. I, I, I happened to be listening to that speech. I tweeted out a, uh, a clip of it, and people went insane. I mean, Robert F. Kennedy who actually used it as a basis for saying he'll, he'll actually end the war where Trump will continue it. So it's kind of interesting how that uh, – I mean, it'll be interesting to observe – how and if Trump's messaging on Ukraine in particular shifts now that he's effectively the nominee. He was always mm-hmm. on course to be the nominee, like with like almost 100% certainty, but now that it's actually verified by election results, it'll be interesting to see as he begins to court more of his previous donors who were against him in 2016 and came around and then were for him in 2020 and then were toying with some other Republican potentially for 2024. Now that they're, they're being brought back into the fold, Can you maybe uh, discern some kind of shift in how Trump is at least rhetorically addressing this issue? Not that his rhetoric necessarily amounts to all that much in terms of significance, but that'd be worth uh, bearing in mind.
1: Um, Do do you think Nikki Nikki Haley and DeSantis, do you think there's an element that they're auditioning for uh, a possible vice presidential slot or cabinet position or something? Because those are two very pro-establishment candidates, but they don't have the popular appeal. Uh, that Trump has you know what what about this Haley phenomenon we got a couple minutes left I'll, I'll give you the floor uh for the final three minutes Mike go ahead
2: yeah I mean obviously I, th- I think if Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley were offered the vice presidency they would take it almost anyone almost any ambitious politician would regardless of what they say Uh are they auditioning for it I kind of doubt it I think Ron DeSantis seems to be running more of like a shadow campaign or like he's doing stuff in Florida now, which has no direct relation to Florida state government. Like he's going to press conferences and making big statements about Israel-Palestine and, you know, criticizing the Biden administration for like allegedly floating a two-state or a Palestinian state, which I don't think they're really even doing. It's more of just a PR tactic. But he was going out of his way to criticize that. And, you know, what does it have to do with, you know, like uh, saving the Everglades or something? Not, not a whole lot. I don't think... And then Haley, uh, I don't know that she's auditioning for vice president at this point, because I think Trump has made clear that he's seeking somebody who's going to be more pliable or more deferential to him. And to continue a campaign against him at this point probably is not what Trump is seeking. I mean, they're really promoting Tim Scott, who ran for president as a Republican and dropped out, I think, in October and November and has been the most uh, obsequious for uh, his uh, touting of Trump. So that I think is probably more likely. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's this odd kind of interregnum period in the campaign where the outcome is essentially decided. So nothing that could happen electorally will probably change the outcome. I mean, Trump is ahead like 60, 30, essentially nationally and in most states Nikki Haley might be able to get a couple of delegates here and there. So like if some ex- extraneous event occurs and Trump is somehow like, rendered him unable to seek the presidency, then Nikki Haley will be the one who actually has some delegates and maybe can make a case for herself as she's the only alternative. I think that's probably the operating logic at this point. Um, but we'll you'll see uh, in South Carolina, which I think is probably going to be cons- completely consistent with what people assume You know, I think, uh, you know, Trump is also at this point, you know, people always uh, balk when I say stuff like this, but Trump does have a lot of establishment support in terms of the party apparatus for the Republican Party. I mean, the, the RNC is basically under his control. The RNC chair endorsed Trump while there's still a competitive primary underway. And he's also getting more and more donor support. So, you know, I think as strange as it seems whatever recalcitrant elements of the republican party there might be in terms of uh, having an antistick act uh, attitude toward trump they're probably going to be brought into the fold soon enough and that will be strange because he's twice impeached and russian asset and all this but um i doubt that it will really change the the basic structure of of the race so
1: I'll be I'll be fascinated also to hear as as the months go on, Michael, your your sort of comments and on, on how the Biden campaign is shaping up as you get closer to the uh, Democratic National Convention in the summer, because a lot of people are looking at the state of Joe Biden recently, um, just his kind of physical and mental state, and extremely worried. The polling shows that a lot of Democrats really didn't want him to run, yet he's he is running. Um, so there's a lot of problems attached to that potentially. So uh, Uh, That's interesting. There's a lot of speculation about last minute shuffling on the ticket, um, all sorts of things like this. So it'll be interesting to get your comments later as that sort of develops. We hope to carry this conversation on uh, in the future. Michael Tracy, Independent Journalist. Before we go, Michael, give our listeners and viewers uh, uh, an indication where they can find your work, your Substack. Give a shout out to where you can see you.
2: Yeah, I just relaunched my Substack recently, actually. It's at mtracy.net, M-T-R-A-C-E-Y.net. Uh just had a piece up yesterday. Um, had a news item in Newsweek this week. People can Google. And then also, um, always, for better or worse, on Twitter slash X. So that's at mtracy, M-T-R-A-C-E-Y.
1: We'll drop those links in the TNT chat community as well. Follow Michael on X Twitter as well for the latest. You would definitely want to be following that account. Michael Tracy, thanks for joining us this week. All right. Good to be with you. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. And top of the hour news headlines are coming up on the other side. We'll be reconnecting with a couple of other expert guests and analysis in a number of things domestically and internationally. Stick around. We'll be back in just a few minutes.